you know what? It's a lot easier to get up, go to work, enjoy life, come home, get supper, read the paper, read something you want to read, go to some entertaining event, watch television, and go to bed. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to deal with our own selfish, sinful hearts. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom concludes his current series titled Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the prominent Welsh Protestant minister, wrote, and I quote, You can be a great student even of the Bible and live a life contrary to it. Alas, there are many such people. There have been many whose chief hobby in life has been the dissection and analysis of the Bible, but they were rather hard and harsh and often failed in some of the elementary principles of the Christian life. It is the masterpiece of Satan to make us put theory and practice into separate watertight compartments to make men so interested in the book that they forgot to apply its teachings." Well, friend, as you'll discover today, the final step to spiritual stability from Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9, is all about obedience. Open your Bible and let's join Tom Pennington now with today's message on the Word Unleashed. Are you seeking someone older and more mature than you whose life and ministry can shape yours? You benefited from it. You learned. In other words, you were discipled by me. There's a second method Paul used under the work of the Spirit of God, and it's the most obvious. Back to Philippians chapter 4, he says, not only did you learn from me, you were discipled by me, but the things you received, this is a reference to the Word of God itself, the Word of God itself. The Greek word that's translated to receive is a technical term for receiving divine revelation. It's used a number of places in the New Testament in the interest of time, We'll just turn to a couple. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And again, there are other words in the New Testament for receiving, but this specific Greek word is a technical word for receiving divine revelation. Notice 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. For this reason we also constantly thank God that when you receive, there's our word, the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Over in chapter 4, he says, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you received, same word, from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. Paul says, listen, not only did I disciple you, but I instructed you, I taught you in the Word of God so that the things you have received, Paul is referring to those things that he himself received by divine revelation. You remember there were some things Paul said, I didn't learn this from any man. God taught me this by His Spirit. But there were also other things that Paul received, the established elements of the Christian message that had been carefully passed on to him by others. There were already books of the New Testament that had been written. Paul says, when I came to you, I taught you the Word of God. Not only did I disciple you, but I taught you the Scripture. I gave you what I had received, both from God and from the other apostles who had 
written what God had required. You and I, too, have received the divine revelation. What are we to do with it? This is another message for another time, but let me just give you an outline. When you look at these passages that talk about receiving revelation, use this word, you'll find that we have very specific responsibilities. You and I, too, have received the Word of God. Not only have we been discipled, in many cases, by others in some form or way, but we've also received God's Word. What do we do with it? Well, you look at those passages, you find several things we're to do with it. First of all, and you saw this just a moment ago in 1 Thessalonians, we're to receive it as the Word of God. We're to acknowledge it to be from God. Secondly, we're to believe it. We're to believe that it's true, that it is all that it claims to be. We're to do what we find there. Fourthly, we're to guard it. Paul tells Timothy, he refers to the Word of God, divine revelation, as the treasure. He says, guard the treasure. What does that mean? It means you and I have a responsibility to keep the Word of God from being distorted and perverted and twisted. We're to guard it. We're to keep it pure, and that leads to the fifth thing we're to do with it, and that is we're to pass it on to the next generation. We're to make sure that the next generation, starting in our own families with our own children and the rest of the folks who in our church who are young in the Lord or perhaps young in age, we're to pass on the treasure, what we have received, the divine revelation to them, to guard it and to pass it on, to receive it, believe it, obey it. These are our responsibilities. Paul says, I discipled you and I taught you the Word of God. You learned and you received. The third method that Paul used to build his truth into the lives of the Philippians and that God uses to build his truth into our lives is not only personal discipleship, not only hearing the Word of God taught and receiving it, but thirdly, personal example. Personal example. Notice he says, the things you have heard and seen in me. This refers to the the imprint that his life and character left on the Philippians. Both what they heard about his character and what they observed firsthand. Paul has no qualms about saying this. Philippians chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, he says this amazing thing, Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. An interesting Greek word. It's the Greek word from which we get our English word mimic. He says, mimic me as I mimic Christ. We learn the truth of God, not only by being discipled, not only by hearing it taught, but by seeing it lived out in the example of others. Children learn by imitating. I read an article this week in the National Geographic about speech. Come as any shock to you, but dogs bark Cats meow and bears growl. This National Geographic article said that the ability for these animals to make those signature sounds is hardwired into them from birth. It's part of the genetic code of those animals. But none of those animals can learn to bark or to meow or to growl in a new way. They are stuck with those sounds. They are not vocal learners. By contrast, we as humans are created a different way. We have the ability to make certain sounds. Those sounds, the moment we're born, we have the capacity to make those sounds that scientists call phonemes, an innate set of phonemes. They're the basic building blocks of phonetic sound. For example, the g in the word goal is one of those phonemes, a building block, and there are a number of them in our language. You hear little children make those sounds. 
Those are the phonemes that go together to make up words and syllables and sentences. You see, what we can do that many of the animals can't is we can modify those phonemes, those basic building blocks, to create a string of them together that have meaning, words and sentences. How does that happen? You've heard your child, and we've all delighted in hearing our little children who yet have not yet learned how to speak, make all of those individual sort of phonetic sounds. How do they translate that into the spoken language? The scientists in this article went on to say they do it by passive imitation. That is, they see and hear us do it over and over again, and they begin to put those phonemes, those building blocks of sound together, seeking to imitate the way we put them together. At first, rather crudely and even humorously, and then as they mature, their imitation becomes better and better and better. As Christians, we learn as well by imitating others who are more spiritually mature than we are and imitating their faith. Passed on to you the authoritative revelation, I discipled you and I provided you with a model to imitate. That's how we learn the truth of God as well. Those same ways that the Philippians learned them. Let me show you the relationship between example and teaching. Turn to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. They are intimately tied together because Paul says this. He's dealing with a specific problem in the Thessalonian church. But he says in verse 6, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Watch this. Not according to the tradition which you receive. There's our word from us. So when he talks about tradition here, he's not talking about something extra biblical. He's talking about the divine revelation. The divine revelation you receive from us. He said, listen, I taught you the divine revelation about this, this issue of work. But, verse 7, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. He said, not only did I teach you, but I served as an example of it. We didn't act in an undisciplined manner among you. We didn't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with labor and hardship, we kept working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. Teaching and example always go together to form an unbreakable link of the truth poured into the lives of others. And Paul says, you had that privilege. You had that example. Just like the Philippians, we learn God's ways. We learn God's standards by personal discipleship, by being taught the Word of God, and by personal example, the example of others. So what do we do with all that we've learned? Some of you have been in Christ a long time. You've learned a lot. You know a lot. What do we do with what we've learned? Notice what Paul says back in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. The things which you have learned and heard and seen in me, practice these things. It's in the present tense in the original language. Literally, he says, be practicing these things. What does it mean to practice? Well, there's a use of this word in Acts 17, or excuse me, Acts 19, 19 that's interesting. It says, all those who in Ephesus who practiced witchcraft threw their, their books into the fire and they were burned. To practice means to do something repeatedly, to be involved in something that is habitual. Webster defines practice as something that is habitual or customary. Even we talk about doctors and lawyers' practices. We say that because they perform habitual duties. You've had the personal discipling. 
You've been taught the Word of God. You've benefited from the example of others. Now practice it. Do it. It's like Nike's slogan, you know, just do it. Implied in that slogan is, you know exercise is good for you, and now you got the shoes, they're going to remove all the pain, so just do it. Now that seems pretty basic, but this is a constant, consistent theme of the Word of God. In the interest of time, I'm just going to show you a, a couple of the passages that I have even here in my notes, and my notes don't come close to exhausting it. Turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say. Chapter 8, verse 21. The context to remind you, remember Christ was in a crowded house and his mothers and brothers, his physical mothers and brothers showed up. They couldn't get to him. And so they send word. It was reported to him, verse 20, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They want to see you. Verse 21, he answered and said to them, my true mother and my true brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. In John 17, or excuse me, in John 13, verse 17, Christ makes the same point. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. John 15, verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Listen, just do what you know, Christ says. Paul says, practice these things. And this is crucial because ultimately what we know is an evidence of the reality of our conversion. If we were to turn to Matthew 7, you would see that in Matthew 7, Christ gives this amazing parable about the foolish man and the wise man. You learned it as a kid. What's the point of that parable? He says, let me tell you who the wise man is. He's the man who hears my word and does it. Let me tell you who the foolish man is, he says. He's the man who hears my word and does not act on them. Nothing is more dangerous than a superficial knowledge of the Word of God. But at the same time that I say that, that that is an indication of genuine faith, it's also true that true believers often know a whole lot more than they practice. Well, let me give you a few reasons I jotted down. These are not exhaustive, but these are a few of the reasons that come to mind. First of all, Sadly, there are some people who just enjoy theoretical knowledge. They just enjoy theoretical knowledge. Just like the seminary student that I, we had to deal with out at Grace Church one time. He was in the seminary. He was, I believe, a second-year student. He was working on the, night, on the uh, cleanup crew, and he was going to the library when no one else was looking and cutting pages out of rare theology books, stealing them so that he could take them home and put them on his walls. He missed the point. He was into theoretical knowledge. Lloyd-Jones says, you can be a great student even of the Bible and live a life contrary to it. Alas, there are many such people. There have been many whose chief hobby in life has been the dissection and analysis of the Bible, but they were rather hard and harsh and often failed in some of the elementary principles of the Christian life. It is the masterpiece of Satan to make us put theory and practice into separate watertight compartments to make men so interested in the book that they forget to apply its teaching, end quote. Others don't practice what they know because they have been confused. They think the heart of the Christian life is experience. And so they, they are waiting for that experience. When they really feel God's presence, when they have this sort of life-changing experience, they're waiting, as it were, for God to zap them with some experience. That's contrary to the spirit of the New Testament. The Christian life is not about experience, it's about obedience. Another reason Christians don't practice what they know is 
that they're waiting until they feel like doing it. They're waiting for the feeling. I've, I've talked to people who will say something like this. Well, don't you think it's hypocritical to get up early and read my Bible when I don't feel like doing it? Welcome to the real world. Who, who feels like getting up early? If you do, there's something desperately wrong with you. No, it's okay to act without feeling it. In fact, James 4.17 says, To the one who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. If you know it's the right thing, don't wait for a feeling, just do it. Another reason people don't practice what they know is laziness. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Peter's talking about building the disciplines of the Christian life, and he says, adding or pursuing with diligence. A lot of times it's just laziness. You know what? It's a lot easier to get up, go to work, enjoy life, come home, get supper, read the paper, read something you want to read, go to, go to some entertaining event, watch television, and go to bed. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to deal with our own selfish, sinful hearts and to discipline ourselves to do what's right. Paul says, or excuse me, Peter says, be diligent about this. Don't be lazy. Another reason, I think, is distraction. I just don't know when I'll find the time to read and to meditate and to pray. People who say that are really admitting that they have chosen less important things over that which is truly important. We all have the time to do what we want to do. There's another reason that I've encountered with some people, and that is they're waiting, until they, they're waiting to start doing what they know until they get victory over a controlling or prevailing sin in their lives. They see that one sin as, well, you know, I've got to deal with that first. No, what you have to do is obey the rest of what you know. And God, in the process of that, will give you the strength to say no to that sin and build different habits into your life. Just start practicing what you know. Don Whitney wrote an excellent book that some of you went through in our home fellowships called The Spiritual Disciplines of the Christian Life. It lists these as the basic disciplines of the Christian experience. Grade yourself as I read them. These should be in all of our lives. Give yourself a grade on how you're doing. Scripture reading. The application of Scripture to our lives. Silence and solitude. In other words, time alone with God. Many of us know, we understand that the Bible says these things are important, but if we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit, admit that in at least a few of these, we should receive a failing grade. So where should you start? Well, you should start with the basics. And let me just say to you, that in this church and in most churches, very few people are consistently disciplining themselves to the basics of the Christian life and experience. Let's start with disciplining yourself to set aside time every day to read and study the Bible. Don't wait for a feeling. Don't wait to, you know, for God to zap you with something. Just do it. You say, well, how? I mean, I've tried before and I, I've not been successful. Let me tell you that almost without exception, those who fail to spend time faithfully in God's Word, the key issue is that they didn't get up early enough. And usually it's because they didn't go to bed early enough. They're wasting hours in the evening, and it's robbing from their time with God in the morning. Job, let me give you a little practical tip. Job said in Job 23, 12, I have treasured the words of his mouth, more than my necessary food. Having trouble fitting in your Bible reading time? I mean, time with God and His Word? Then just commit yourself to this. I will not eat any physical food until I have fed my soul. If you make that commitment, there'll be very few days you go without eating. 
because you will find time. It comes down to discipline. It comes down to determining what's important and doing it. Discipline yourself to pray. I have to confess to you that I've been personally rebuked this week as I've studied this passage and I've thought about these things that I don't pray enough. And so I've determined before God and in light of this passage to discipline myself just to do it to get up a little earlier so I can spend more time in prayer with God. But perhaps you're like many people who, even as you think of these basics that we're to discipline ourselves to do, you're saying, look, you know, I've tried that and it doesn't work. What does that mean? Well, usually it means two things. I tried it and it felt awkward. Well, of course, all new habits that you're learning feel awkward when you're learning. Remember how awkward it was to tie your shoes when you were learning? And secondly, it means... I tried it, and there were no dramatic changes in my life. There was nothing obvious in the first two mornings, and so I stopped. What we're really talking about here with disciplining yourself for godliness, with just doing it, with practicing these things, we're talking about exercising enough discipline to learn new habits. The principle of habit is a wonderful gift from God. I mean, imagine if you had to think as much about driving as you did the first time you drove a car. Time on the cell phones like you are. You remember that? You remember, I mean, you were thinking about all of the things you're supposed to keep in mind and where your feet are and where your hands are and who's behind you and who's in front of you and you, you were ultra aware of all of those things and that was all you could think about. But the beauty of habit, and it's a gift from God, we abuse it sometimes because of our sinful hearts, but it's a wonderful gift from God because now I can drive my car and I can make cell phone ministry calls while I'm driving. It's a wonderful gift because I don't have to think about it anymore. Those who observe human behavior say that it takes six to eight weeks to learn a new habit. And if you stick with it for six months, it'll become so much a part of you that it'll feel unnatural not to do it, and it'll be yours for a lifetime. So all we're talking about, folks, is showing enough discipline for six to eight weeks to make it become a habit. Don't run after some experience. Don't wait for some feeling. Paul finishes with an amazing promise. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. The God who is the source of peace, the one who is characterized by peace, he will be with you. Well, God's everywhere, so what does that mean? He's with everyone in some sense. Well, Christ tells us exactly what it means in John 14. Turn there and I'll be done. John 14, he says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and here's an amazing promise, will disclose myself to him. Judas, non Iscariot, said to him, Lord, what then has happened that you're going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and here it is, make our abode with him. In other words, God will be with you as a friend, with you to bless, with you to protect, with you to care for you as one of his own. Verse 24, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Things you've heard and seen and other godly people around you, look at what you know and determine to discipline yourself to practice those things.
That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed. And that concludes his current series, Six Steps to Spiritual Stability. Tom will begin a new series for you on our next broadcast as he once again takes us to God's Word. Do join us then. But before we leave you, Tom has some closing thoughts. Tom? I trust after studying it together that you'd agree with me that this is one of the richest, most profound passages in the New Testament. Because here the Apostle Paul, the model of spiritual stability, teaches us how to enjoy that same spiritual stability in six, I won't say easy steps, but simple steps. We can understand them, and by God's grace, by the work of the Spirit, we can pursue them. That's my prayer for you, that God would help you to embrace these priorities and to pursue them, and that the Spirit would produce change in you as a result, that you would become truly spiritually stable. Thanks, Tom. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our email address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. That's 1-877-577-WORD. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. We thank you for listening. The Word Unleashed exists because God, in His Word, has given you every spiritual resource you need to grow in Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that the power of God's Word be unleashed in your life.